again, grateful uh, that you are here this morning and that we have this chance to look into God's Word uh, together. Um, as we start out uh, this morning, and I, and I thank Lucas for, for reading that for us, um, I think it's important to maybe take a moment to consider God's Word and what it means. You heard the passage as Lucas read it. Um, it. It seems like just such an innocuous passage, doesn't it? I mean, we've, um, we've spent some time here in chapter 12 talking about some very heavy things, some, some deep things. We spend time talking about the Sabbath and, and rest and what that means. Um, there was some, Jesus has done some miracles. He's healed a withered hand. He's uh, freed a demon-possessed oppressed man as well. Um, a lot of discussion about, uh, with the Pharisees and a lot of back and forth. And last week we talked about the sign of Jonah and what that means in terms of uh, Jesus' mission here as he's here on earth. And now we close out chapter 12 with seemingly a mundane, domestic sort of situation, right? Uh, Jesus' mother and his brothers, Jesus is in some house, supposedly Jesus' mother and his brothers come and they want to see him. And Jesus, you know, kind of rebuffs them, sort of, right? So the question that comes to my mind is like, it seems odd. We've, we've talked about all this stuff, and now there's this passage here that just seems so mundane, so everyday, so, you know, just domestic. What, what, what do we do with this? Well, again, I come back to God's Word. And the one, the fact that God does reveal Himself to us. Think about it. The Almighty God of the universe reveals himself to us, that we can know him. But how does he do that? What was his methodology for revealing himself to us? He does that through the human story, as we see in Scripture. He does it through the story of families, right? You go into the Old Testament, it's really just... Really, in the beginning, it's a story of a, a family that then grows and grows into a nation. But it's through the human story. What a way to reveal himself to us in that way. And you think about God's word and you think about, you know, uh, you know why this way? Why so many different books over so many time with so many different authors and so many different styles of, of literature why this way? You know, why not just create some book that's got just an infinite list of situations that say, hey, this situation, do this. You know, when it's 5 p.m. on a Tuesday and this happens, do this. Why not just list it all out for us? And no, and to reveal us, he, he does it through the human story. And then he preserves that for us in his word. Christians here in the U.S., when it comes to our Bibles, um, it, you know, it's not a big thing, right? Um, we, we have the luxury to have decorative Bibles. 
you know, uh, some of you might have, you know, a Bible that sits in your house. No one reads it. No one touches it. It's just a just decorative Bible in, in our house. You go to other parts of the world, and to have the scriptures, to even have a, a page or a verse written down and to have it is such a precious thing, right? So I think at times we, we take it for granted, God's word. Think about what had to happen for these words to be preserved throughout history up until now for you to have and hold in your hand and be able to read and to know God. Um, I think it, it's important for us to, you know, especially in this country where, you know, Bibles are just a luxury, right? God's Word's just hanging out here and there on our mantle and on our shelf and here and there to, to, think, about, to think about that. And that being said, we come to this passage, and it's a fairly innocuous passage. It just looks like a, a story about a family that's, that's, uh, that's having an issue. And yet, even in that, we have something that we can take away. We have a theme that comes out. And it's a theme that we've really been talking about all throughout this Gospel of Matthew, and specifically all throughout chapter 12. And it, that theme comes to a culmination in this seemingly innocuous passage in verses 46 to 50. And that theme is that relationship with Jesus takes priority over every other relationship, even the relationship with one's family. If you think back to Matthew chapter 10, what's kind of illustrated here is when Jesus says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. You see it kind of illustrated out here in this passage. If you wanted to take this theme and summarize it into just two words, right? It's helpful for me. I'm very forgetful. Pretty was here. She'd be nodding, right? I can't remember anything, right? So if you want to distill it down to two words, this theme, this idea, Jesus first. Jesus first. Matthew has been slowly building his readers to this, this sort of pivotal point to make a decision to put Christ first in their lives. You see this in, just recently in, in chapter 12 where Jesus talks about being greater than the temple and greater than Solomon, right? It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a thinking of status, of position, of hierarchy. So you, you may have noticed in chapter 12, there are these other voices that swirl around in the air, the negative voices of the Pharisees, the confused voices of the crowd that hangs around. And here we have even the concerned voices of Jesus' mother, and his brothers, whose voice do we listen to? We need to listen to the voice of the beloved son. We need to listen to what Jesus has to say about our relationship with him being of utmost and preeminent importance. So when we talk about this idea of Jesus first and how our relationship with Jesus, you know, takes kind of priority over these other relationships, um, Jesus kind of gets to it here in a couple different ways. 
First, you see in verses 46 to 48 that he teaches us that it, at this point in his ministry, and it's fascinating, at this point in his ministry, his family is on the outside looking in. What do we read in verse 46? While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and brothers stood, out, stood outside asking to speak to him. And then we come to verse 47. You guys see verse 47 there? Depending on your translation, you might not, ha you might not have a verse 47. So, in the translation that I'm reading from, it's the English Standard Version, and many of the modern translations we have right now, uh, verse 47 is conspicuously missing. You might have a footnote there that will take you down to the, to the bottom, right? Um, if you've got the, uh, the Bibles that are here and the version that's here, they actually have it included, right? But a lot of the modern translations don't. So why, right? What's going on here? Right? I think it's important to kind of uh, recognize, right? Because if you're reading this, you kind of go, 46, 48, what happened? So it's not included here in this translation because, in many translations, because some of the more reliable Greek manuscripts of the New Testament don't actually contain that specific verse. So we have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament from different times and different places. And across all of those, there are very few variants, and that's what these are called, textual variants. But what we see is, however, from time to time, right, and these transcripts are going through like a copying process, there might be a, a, a slight alteration in the copying process, right? Someone will forget to copy a letter or a word or something small like that. And then other times, like in this specific situation in verse 47, someone decided to add a sentence. This does not happen very often. So what happened in this situation seemingly is the scribe, right, that was copying these verses thought that when you get to verse 48 and it says, but he replied to the man who told him, went, wait, what man? And thought, it doesn't really make sense. We didn't introduce a man that came and gave Jesus, told Jesus that his mother and brothers were here. So he inserts in there, someone told him, your mother and your brothers are standing outside asking to speak to you. Now, Whatever you think about that edition, what we have to acknowledge first is that this verse is not changing anything of, of theological significance to the scripture here, right? It's basically just repeating what's happening in verse 46. It's also very similar to if you go to the parallel account in Mark chapter 3, verse 32, it looks very close to that. So it also could have been uh, the scribe that was copying it, seeking to align or harmonize, right, the different accounts. So again, these are called textual variants. And this is what those people who would that would be unbelievers and challenge the, uh, the authenticity or the historicity of the Bible, 
uh, they'll glom onto something like that, like a textual variant, and say, oh, the Bible is full of errors. This is an error. But right, if you go into the textual criticism and you understand right, the manuscripts and you understand the process, uh, you can really kind of say, well, yeah, what, what errors exactly are we talking about here? And you can actually walk through this process and explain that when it comes to the New Testament, the New Testament is, from a histor historicity perspective, is the most reliable of any ancient document that we have by far. By far. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, just aside there to say that, right, in your reading and you see, you know, a verse, like, disappear, um, this is kind of what's going on, right? Um, so, anyway... Back to, back to the actual context here. So, no, no 47, we go to verse 48, right? While he was still speaking, his, his mother's brothers come, but, the, but he replied to the man who told him, what does Jesus say? Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Yeah, so we're coming to Christmas time, right? You know, getting families together. This sounds like this is trouble, <laughs> right? This sounds like, you know, I, I can't pull this off, right? You know, I put myself in Jesus' shoes, and I'm there, right? And I'm somewhere, and my mom and my brother come to the house, and they go, hey, I hear Billy's in there. We want to come see you. And then I just look at everyone, everyone's going, what? Here is my mother and my brothers. I don't think that my mom and my brother right here. I don't think that would go over very well, right? I don't think that, that, would, that, would, be, that would work. What happens? Jesus' family comes to this house that Jesus is apparently in. They inquire about him. Someone goes in the house and tells him. And then Jesus doesn't talk to them, but he talks to this man that maybe came and told him. And then specifically, more, impo more importantly, to who? Who does he say this to? The disciples who are with him, right close to him, within an arm's reach of him. So think about who he's saying it to. This is important. He especially wants them to hear what he is saying. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Okay, so Jesus is, Jesus is not dumb here, right? That he's, he didn't forget, right? This is like a rhetorical question, right? Jesus is, Jesus is drawing something out here. He's not ignorant. I don't think he's being cute here. You know, he knows he just wasn't dropped from heaven into a manger in Bethlehem. We know that's not how the story goes. He knows that Mary is his mother. He knows uh, about Joseph, his earthly father, who most scholars would say died at some point, right, in Jesus' early life. He knows he has sisters. Go to Matthew 13, 56, he, who, who are not named, right? He knows he has brothers, Go to Matthew 13, 55, who are named James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. 
Why is Jesus' family there in the first place? Why are they coming? Matthew doesn't explain it for us. It just says that where are they? Where does Matthew say they are? Outside. They are outside. That is important for us. It's important spatially, but it's also important theologically. Jesus and his disciples are inside. Mary and Jesus' brothers are still outside. Why are they outside? They are likely outside because they have not been following Jesus the way that his disciples have been following Jesus. Matthew doesn't seem to indicate their indecision, but if you go to the Gospel of Mark and John, we come to understand that at this point, Jesus' family was not exactly in sync with Jesus' ministry. If you go to John uh, chapter 7, verses 1 to 5, which comes after when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he walks on water and he's done many, many miracles, what do we find out? We learn that Jesus' brothers want Jesus to leave town. Why? Because they feared for his life. And then John, the gospel writer, interprets their actions and says the reason was for not even his brothers believed in him. In Mark chapter 3, you find another similar sort of um, idea about disbelief. Jesus' family wants to, wants to sort of get him before the authorities do. You know, perhaps they know about the Pharisees' desire to destroy him, right? We read that earlier in Matthew chapter 12. And they're like, ah, we, we, maybe we need to put a stop to this. And now here they are at the door, knocking. So when Matthew says that they are outside, really more than that, there's a meaning that they are actually outsiders at this point. That is, they don't understand that where Jesus' mission is going. Where is Jesus' mission heading? To the cross. It's amazing. We're here in this Christmas time, and, and Neil actually brought it up earlier. And you think about Mary, and the angel appears to her, and that's 30 years before what we're talking about right now, okay? And, we, and the angel, and she responds in this humble faith that we laud and we should because it's an amazing thing. But now think, even Mary, as faithful as she was 30 years ago, right? In sort of a similar way to think about John the Baptist in prison that we looked at right? What's happening? They're struggling to make sense of Jesus as the suffering servant. 
that we see in Isaiah. They're struggling to see that the Messiah's mission is to go where? Is to go to the cross. She's struggling to see that her own flesh and blood would die. She didn't want him to die. So when Jesus says, who is my mother, right? It sounds, it sounds harsh, doesn't it? It's, it does. It sounds harsh. That's way more tamer than, though, what he says to Peter. What does he say to Peter when Peter starts to maybe get in the way of the mission towards the cross? What, is, what are his words to Peter? What does, he, what does he say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. That's what he says to Peter. Right? But Peter and Mary, they're, they're, at this point, are missing, missing the mission. They ha- their, their vision is obscured from the things of God onto the, the things of, of, of man, right? Both of them are sort of on a rescue mission to save Jesus from what? The ultimate rescue mission, right? They're trying to rescue Jesus from rescuing. So you see, right? The idea here is Jesus first, right? But the first sort of sub-point under that is that Mary and, and the brothers seem to be on the outside. They're on the outside looking in, right? They're not as far outside as the Pharisees. They're not as far outside as the crowd who is, you know, confused at times, but they are outside, So what are some applications we can take from that? First, what can we take from that? If Jesus' family showed concern and confusion and perhaps even hostility toward Jesus and the gospel, we would not be surprised as Christians today if there were those around us, even in our families, who are, are, are unbelievers or maybe not, maybe more nominally Christian, that would think that we are absolutely crazy, out, out of our minds, or yeah, you're taking it too far, right? We, we can take from this that we should not be surprised that that might happen. I think at times that would hold us back. And we think, ah, oh, you know, if I really take this serious now, if I really pour my life into this, nobody else in my family takes it this, does it this way. What, you know, what are they going to think? So this first sort of application of this idea is we, not to be surprised if there might be some, could be some Division, some derision, right? The second application I think we can take from this, though, is if we find ourselves in that situation, one, to not let that be a hesitance for us for diving in deep into our faith, but also the second application would be this, to give it time. If you have those around you, those close to you, that 
maybe don't believe. Give it time. Because, I say that, because this isn't the last time we see Jesus' family in the narrative. This is not the end of, of their story in the narrative, is it? One of the greatest works of art of the, of the Renaissance period is uh, Michelangelo's Pieta, right? This is a beautiful sculpture, and it portrays what? Mary holding Jesus as he is down off of, of the cross. Uh, from a work of art perspective, it's utterly remarkable, right? Um, the Gospels don't portray that specifically, right? We don't have, we don't, the Gospels don't say that that specific instance occurred. But it does say that where is Mary during the crucifixion? She is right, she is there. She is there. It says in John chapter 19, 26, 27, when Jesus saw his mother standing nearby, he says to his mother, woman, behold your son, John, his disciple, and John, behold your mother. And John is commanded to take care of her. Quite a journey for Mary, right? From the angel that speaks to her when she is just a young, young, young woman to that scene where she's knocking on the door concerned about her son, 30 years old, and what's going on? To then at the foot of the cross. See, ultimately, Mary would look at the cross, literally. And spiritually, on that day and soon after, those words that she sung, that she would rejoice in God her Savior, that she sings, that, uh, the Magnificat that she sings, that we celebrate in Christmas time, upon seeing the cross and soon after that, she actually will rejoice in God her Savior. After the resurrection and on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came in power upon the church, who is in the upper room with Jesus' disciples? In Acts chapter 114, it says, All these, meaning the twelve apostles minus Judas, with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Isn't that wonderful? You see the full arc of their faith story for when it comes to Mary and the brothers. Through faith, through faith in their resurrected Lord Jesus, these outsiders, these outsiders in Matthew chapter 12 become insiders in Acts chapter 1. You see, through, through faith, they become part of what? The true family of God. Jesus' mother becomes his mother. Jesus' brothers become his brothers. It's amazing. And what happened when the Spirit of God descended upon them at Pentecost? What happened to those people in that room? 
What happened to that family? That family preached Jesus not as their son, not as their brother. They preached Jesus as what? Lord. Lord. When you think about Jesus' brothers, who we know, Jesus' brother James, most notably, he becomes the head of the church in Jerusalem. If you go to Acts chapter 15, you can see some of the background there. And the book, the letter of James that we see in the New Testament is written by that same person, the, the brother of Jesus. And James, when he starts his, if you, you can go to his epistle, right, in James, and you see how he starts it. He doesn't start it saying, James, the brother of Jesus Christ. He doesn't hang his hat on that. What does he say? James, a servant of God and, the, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a humble admission for a brother. Right? For Bradley to write that about me in a letter, he had to see something crazy to say something like that, right? Well, they came to know the resurrected Lord. And then James acknowledges him as his Savior, as his Lord, as his Master. So the first thing we've heard from Jesus here is that even his family at that time was sort of on the outside and sort of looking in. So that's the first sort of idea around this concept of Jesus first. Jesus first. The second sort of idea underneath that that we must think about is that, that blood might be thicker than water, right? You've heard that phrase before. Blood might be thicker than water. But the water that Jesus has to offer, this water that, that wells up into eternal life, is actually thicker than blood. So naturally, we think my family, you know, is made up of those who are related to me by, by blood or some sort of legal document, right? I had no choice in the matter, right? <laughs> I have to stick with them because, well, they're, they're blood. They're blood to me. There's a, there's, a, there's a thickness to our relationship. What's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, that's true. You're related to certain people by blood. There's a certain bond to that. But, however, unity of spirit through faith is thicker than that. Meaning that there is actually more substance there. Permanent, strong, true, sure. Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Right? If you look again at verse 49 and 50, Jesus says, what does he do? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister 
and mother. So what's Jesus doing with this statement, right? He's not breaking family ties. He's not breaking family ties. He is loosening them in a sense. He's not dissolving natural family bonds, but he's showing the strength of supernatural family bonds. And what's beautiful about this is Jesus puts no, he puts no spiritual value in blood relations or religious heritage. Did you notice that? He, he doesn't care if your father was the high priest or if your father was the, the, the pastor of the church or some grand individual in faith. See, the kingdom of God is not open to like an exclusive who's who. What does Jesus say there? In 50, it's open to whoever. Not a who's who, but whoever. Think about Matthew hearing this and writing this. What a refreshing word for him, isn't it? A tax collector like Matthew. Whoever. Jew, Gentile, man, woman, slave, free, saint, sinner. Whoever, but whoever what? This is the interesting part. Whoever believes? That's what we might have expected it to say, right? Right? Is he talking about here? He says, whoever believes in me may have eternal life, right? You think to John 3.16. That's not here. That's not what's being emphasized here in this moment. What's emphasized here as really it is in many places in the Gospel of Matthew, is not the believing as it is, what, the, the doing. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, that's who's in the church. That's who's in fellowship with the Father. That's who are the brothers and sisters in Christ. Whoever does God's will. Now, let me make something clear. Matthew is not ch turning it on its head everything we know uh, from the Apostle Paul about justification by faith. Right? We are justified by faith alone. That is true. It is a bedrock of what we believe. But what, what's going on here is he's merely, merely illustrating what that faith alone looks like. And we mentioned this, I think, last week or maybe the week before, that faith, faith alone in Christ is never alone. Those who are in fellowship with God through faith in Christ, they talk in a particular way, right? They walk in a certain way. There's an evidence, right? There's, a, um, there's an expression of that faith tangibly in their lives. That their works and their doing are not the root of their faith, but the fruit of their faith. It's what we see. Their words and their works show that they are right with God. 
You may have heard the term, uh, there's no I in team, right? Well, there's no do in disciple, right? But, but there should be. There should be. You know, you should, you need, we need to cram it in there. I don't know. If you want to change the word to a disciple, right? Uh, that sounds a little weird. But <clears throat> in our thinking, at least, we need, we need to do that, right? We've got to cram it in there because that doing is a distinctive for a disciple. So my question for us this morning, for you and me, as we sit here and we consider what that, all this means is, how is your doing doing? If I can put it that way, right? See, we're not, one is not a Christian by mere like, profession of faith or church attendance or generous giving or some sort of baptismal rite. One is a Christian by being a doing disciple. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, encourages us in 2 Corinthians 13.5 to do what? Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Examine yourself. So it's possible... To be religious, it's, it's possible to be religious like the Pharisees and still not be a part of the kingdom. It's possible to be physically related to the Messiah himself and not be a part of the kingdom of God. Religious practices or your religious pedigree is inadequate, utterly inadequate to bring anyone into the kingdom. So what's needed? There needs to be an acknowledgement of who Jesus is and a determined decision to follow him, to follow him. And more than that, a determined decision to follow Jesus, but a disciplined doing of God's will. There's a quote I think summarizes it well. It says, the essence of discipleship is not mere profession, right doctrine, or even charismatic phenomena, but doing the will of God. What, but what is the will of God? It's the will of God to believe in Christ. As we come to close this morning, what's the will of God? I think there are at times in our lives where if we do ask ourselves that question genuinely, we relegate ourselves to paralysis. What's the will of God? Well, I'll tell you the way you won't find out. You won't find out by not reading this, for sure. I can guarantee you that, right? If we're going to know, think about this. If we want to know what is important to God, how would we figure that out apart from his word? 
So you want to value the same things that God values, right? right? If we're talking about doing the will of God, we need to value the same things that He values. What does He value? How do we know? How do we determine how He reacts to certain situations and how, how, what, what He does? It, it's here. So if you look in God's Word, what is the will of God? The will of God is to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. What's the will of God? To love not the lusts of the world. What's the will of God? To abstain from sexual immorality. What's the will of God? To be subject to every human institution. What's the will of God? to provide for relatives that are in need. What, what is the will of God? For, for elders within the church, pastors to manage their own households well. That's, that's the will of God. What's the will of God? For fathers and mothers to raise their children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. That's the will of God. What's the will of God? For children to what? Honor and obey their parents in the Lord. What's the will of God? If you look into Matthew chapter 8 to 12, what's the will of God? The will of God is to follow Jesus, to listen to Him, to rest in Him, to be in awe of Him, to acknowledge Him as a king greater than Solomon in all His glory, putting Him first, putting Him first, It's funny, we, we know what first means until we don't like what that means to us, right? I think often we, 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 we get first in our mind, but when, when, you, when it's something that you don't really, when you have to take something out from the first position and put it over here and then replace it, all of a sudden we start redefining what first means and what that looks like. So what do we do? What do we say? What do we pray? You know, you might, you might be here and thinking about your own life, thinking, you know, I, I don't know if I have any, any sort of real profession of faith ever. Well, if that's your case, right? Then I would say to you, why wait, right? What, do you, what, are, you, what, are, what are you waiting for here at this point, right? Are you waiting for you know, your entire family or the group around you to somehow get to a place where they will acknowledge and accept that decision from you? I'd say, what are you waiting for? Make that profession of faith. Throw yourself into the community of God and do the will of God. Put Jesus first. If you have made a profession of faith, but you look into your life and you think, mm, when, you, when, when you hear the words Jesus first, if the first things that come to your mind are all the ways that you're not putting Jesus first, right? <laughs> that you can confess that to God this morning. You can confess that. And ask for the strength to overcome that.
to stop pretending that, stop using the excuse that you can't know the will of God to not do the will of God. You have God's word. You have it. Preserved for you by God throughout the millennia so that you could hold within your hand the will of God and know it. You can do it. Jesus first. Jesus first. Whatever it is, whatever pops into your mind when I say Jesus first, that's not Jesus. That, that's the thing, right? That's the idol in your life. That's the thing you need to lay down before him. That's what this passage is teaching. It's what our prayer should be today. <clears throat> I'm reminded of the, it's an old Irish prayer. It goes back a really long while. But it's very orienting, I think, to help us understand this Jesus first idea. And it goes like this, Christ with me. In, in this season of Emmanuel, I think that's a great way to start. But Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me, Christ in the mouth of everyone who speaks of me, Christ in every eye that sees me, Christ in every ear that hears me. Jesus first. Jesus first. That's our call. As we, as we go out of this place, I hope that that would rest in our heart. And if it, um, if it leaves you unsettled, know that that's not a bad thing. But what is the bad thing is to take that unsettling and then do absolutely nothing about it. Why wait? Jesus first. It's what he's called his disciples to do. It's what he's called us as a church to proclaim. And that's what we're going to do to his glory. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond to God's word together.